All right. <coughs> Stretching out. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> me, 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 me. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> okay, and we're serious now. Very serious. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. <laughs> On with the show. All right. Hello, scorekeepers. From the land of the Dakotas, also known as the Twin Cities, it's The Score, episode seven. Can you believe it? No, I <laughs> Lucky number seven. <laughs> I mean, that's just insane. My gosh. Anyway, welcome to the show. This is Minnesota Opera's podcast where we talk about classical music and opera from a black perspective i am rocky jones i am here with my two amazing co-hosts paige reynolds and lee bynum how are y'all doing we chilling Mm, yeah yeah living life (laughs) (laughs) well well, that that sounds like a ringing endorsement (laughs) (laughs) life and love and existence (laughs) it is a gloomy day to be fair it's a very yeah it's so dreary it has been raining nonstop. just cats and dogs and (laughs) i know you two just had like your check-in i had a check-in with my therapist this morning (laughs) (laughs) and don't give me i mean i well absolutely amen and as the son of a psychology major from howard university (laughs) (laughs) um you know i take my mental health very seriously and very you know loud and proud i am in therapy everyone go get some Mm -hmm. good for you but it was one of those sessions where it's like we got like real into it and like my therapist is great and he has very clear boundaries like when the session is over the session is over (laughs) (laughs) and so we got to like the like the end time and like he just looked at me and he was just like I don't have anything at 11. Do you have a few more minutes? And I was just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but no, it was good. It was very helpful. That kind of day, though. He was like, we can use that kind of extra day. few. <laughs> you, 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 you okay? You okay? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's also been like that kind of a week. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. for sure. You know, I think all of us, you know, we are we are recording this on Thursday, the 27th. So two days ago on Tuesday, the 25th um, was the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd um, outside of uh, Cup Foods on 38th in Chicago here in Minneapolis. And uh, it was. Uh, it was a definitely a complicated day. For yeah. me, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think a complicated day for for people all over this country, but especially here um, in this city where there is just so much um, turmoil, um, 
sort of in the aftermath of that event. Um, you know, it really was an event that, I mean, quite literally shook the world. Yeah. You know, the epicenter was right here um, <laughs> where we live. Um, and so I'm just, uh, I'm curious, you know, how, how are y'all doing? Um, you know, did you, did either of you do anything special um, on that day to sort of commemorate um, the moment? I did. I mean, I was, yeah, I was in my feelings that day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, I, okay, I'm going to take some time to, you know, prioritize my mental health and community and um, just kind of knowing that if I just sat and, and wallowed, I would probably, you know, I, I didn't want to like send my nervous system into back into that place of, of last year and, um, not only the the murder of George Floyd, but then the, the uprisings afterwards, you know, it was just a really heightened time. So I was like, you know, mm-hmm. let's do some emotional regulation, some nervous system regulation mm-hmm. today. Let's mm-hmm. <laughs> let's just anticipate that. So, you know, I, I, I took it easy and I and I reflected and um you know, um especially, you know, reflected on the people I, I was with at that time last year and just, you know, my community and feeling really grateful for the folks I could lean on. And then I spent some time in George Floyd Square, George Floyd Memorial Square. And and I think that was the best thing I could have done. It felt really mm. good to to be in community. I mean, I'm it, it was like... um. I don't know. I, I feel there's a lot of it, it's not just like one emotion or or one feeling. So like, yeah, there there was a somewhat of a solemn mood, um, a thoughtful and reflective mood, but also a lot of love and also just mm-hmm. uh, like look at how we continue to come together uh, kind of mood as well. Um and that I think George George Floyd Square has been has been occupied twenty four seven since then. It has not re mm. it is not reopened. Uh uh-uh. Yeah, like the the big yeah. the big fist that y'all see in the pictures and stuff. That's all mm-hmm. still there. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that people you know laid down last year as <laughs> as you know you know flowers or. Um, yeah, just, you know, dedications to the space. It's all it's all still there. Um so yeah, that was that was that was beautiful and I was out there with Million Artist Movement. We do our power tree quilting and we had all the quilts out that we made last summer at the mm. square. Well, not all of them, all of them. It was actually a, a whole lot of quilts. <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't <laughs> we couldn't put them all up, but so many people come to the came to the our booth to make even more quilt oh, squares. That's so cool. Yeah. Okay. But it's a beautiful thing and you know, people comment walking away like, Oh, I feel so much more calm. Some person said like, Oh, this is the calmest like I felt in 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 months. So um there was just like a really like a lot of a thoughtful, healing, creative kind of engagement, music everywhere, all the food was free, there's mm. health information, there like all kinds of stuff. So it was it was beautiful. It was just what my heart needed. Good. That sounds like a beautiful experience. Yeah. 
What about you, Rocky? Oh, well. I... <laughs> I did a little bit more wallowing <laughs> um, than Paige did. I, um, I think for me... I just kind of took that day to really sort of sit and do some quiet reflecting, which, you know, I don't really take the time to do as much as perhaps that I should um, and to do a lot of sort of emotional processing, you know, as, <laughs> um, you know, Mr. Aquarius, I think you'd probably understand this, that, you know, when it comes to sort of emotional stuff um you know i tend to sort of try and understand it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know rather than like actually like feel it um and so i wanted to take that day to really just sort of do some processing see what comes up maybe write maybe create some music um and i found that you know thinking about this past year, um, you know, just like you, you said, Paige, like there was just, you know, at, at the time, like everything was so heightened and everyone's nervous systems were just, you know, on 10, like for months. Um, and through that, you know, so many things happened, so many changes happened, you know, personally, professionally in the world. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we probably would still, you know, have our diversity charter at Minnesota Opera and we probably, you know, would be, maybe we'd be sitting here, you know, in our, our jobs doing this podcast. Um, I don't think all of those things perhaps would have happened as quickly, mm -hmm. um, or as with as much urgency. Um, and so... I feel happy that we have this opportunity, this space to really express ourselves, to do good work, um, to be out there in the community and making change. Um, but one thing that I, I, I really found um, that perhaps I wasn't quite expecting is how close I really got to my anger on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I found Tuesday to be a very, very angry day um, for me. Um, simply because, like, yes, you know, we're having all of these conversations um, and there have been changes that have been made, but it, it doesn't feel like the changes have gone far enough, fast enough. Um... You know, I, I read an article in Forbes um, that, you know, corporate America had pledged $50 billion um, in the wake of all of the uprisings, um, and less than 1% of that had been actually donated and allocated mm. um, in the year since. Um, that there have been polls um, of white Americans and support for Black Lives Matter is even less than it was before um, George Floyd's murder um, at this point. Um, and it, it sort of reminds me, it, it, it fills me with just kind of, a, you know, I try to stay optimistic 
um, as much as I can. But, you know, to read things like that is really, really hard. Um, and it makes me feel um, a degree of worry, just sort of, you know, was all of this talk of EDI and anti-racism and everything that sprung up in the wake of, of, of Mr. Floyd's murder, the call for abol abolition and, and defunding the police and, you know, just dismantling this entire, you know, sort of white supremacist system and all these institutions that have been on our necks for 400 years. Um, was that just kind of a, a fad? <laughs> um, and now people are, you know, at least the people who are, you know, really, we're really looking to, to sort of change laws and change hearts and minds. I don't know. I don't, it, it, you know, I watched the news and I watched all of these people a lot of white people being interviewed being like, oh my gosh, you know, now we're just having these conversations and the conversation has changed and I've learned so much. And it's like, well, if the conversation has changed so much and you've learned so much, why doesn't it feel like anything is all that different? Yeah. Why is it still just a conversation? Why is it still just a conversation? Why isn't it action? Why haven't we, you know, gotten together to make some sort of collective change um and so for me i think you know we we tend to forget that you know this isn't the first time um obviously that you know a black person has been you know executed publicly by a police officer you know i think people sometimes people tend to forget that like Philando Castile's murder was broadcast on Facebook live. Yep. <laughs> Everybody got to watch that as well. Um, you know, and taking it back to like Rodney King, um, you know, in the nineties and, you know, we all watched him just get savagely beaten by like five police officers. Um, so this isn't the first time that this sort of thing has happened. I think it's the first time that it happened at a time when literally everyone in the country was forced to be in their homes and forced to watch. Um, like you, you couldn't, you couldn't get away from it. Um, and so it caused this, you know, national reckoning and thank God for Daniela, um, or Darnella, excuse me, um, for, for taking that video and being there. Um, but it, it just it just makes me feel like if if we can't take this if we can't all see that and take that from that action and move it from a space of conversation to a, a space of action and don't do it quickly then like I I don't I don't want to be like this super pessimistic person um, but I I just. I don't know how we how we move forward, how we actually advance. Um, and <laughs> and it makes me angry. It makes me really, 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 really effing angry. Um, because, you know, for 400 years in this country, every generation of black people who have lived in this country has asked every generation of white people in this country to please remove your boot from my neck and 
they all always go, oh, sure, 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 sure. Like, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, Voting Rights Act, Barack Obama, cool. But all that's really actually happened is that, like, the style of the boot has changed. Like, Mm. at first it was, like, you know, like a little, like, pilgrim boot with a buckle, and now it's, like, Mm -hmm. some, like, hipstery vintage brown leather (laughs) some fancy work type deal Mm -hmm. so i mean that's a that's a long-winded answer to your question lee um i'm i'm feeling a bit better today now that i'm i'm seeing both of you and talking to both of you um but yeah i'm it it was a it was a struggle that day yeah. But how are you? How are you doing, Lee? Uh, you know, um, yeah, it's been it's been a hard one um, because this week I was sick most of the week. I'm feeling mostly better, but not a hundred percent. And as luck would have it, my husband is away for the next couple of weeks. He's doing a a gig that has him back on the East Coast, and it's exciting because you know it's been like really 15 months since any performers have been doing anything live and in person. So I'm super excited for him in that regard. But boy, what a week to be left alone with my own thoughts. Mm. Um, And, you know, I am of two minds and neither of them is in a great place about any of this. There's the one piece where, you know, when I can see things with clarity, I know that there has been movement in the sense that we are now having, we're actively having conversations about police reform, even if they're not going anywhere in a lot of instances, that there is a space to have these kinds of conversations is not a throwaway thing for me. And I appreciate that there is more openness now to actually thinking about the many valences of of how communities of color are experiencing being policed and the fact that we are now talking about them in the public square i think is really important on the other hand i would challenge someone to tell me what's actually different now than what we had last year (laughs) right and you know part of why this is a a thing that i i can't just intellectualize my way out of like I managed to do for so many things simply to be a queer black person alive in America. I feel like there are moments that I just have to take something and put it to the side, right? Because if you spend a lot of time thinking about some of this stuff, what it does to your psyche, it it isn't terribly useful, right? But part of why this is such a challenge for me, and I've shared this with the two of you before, but I haven't you know, really talked about it with people who I don't know well is when I was a kid, literally like in first grade, um, there was a a racial violence incident, a group against a group of West Indian immigrants in Howard Beach, New York. And one of them was my uncle. And this was such a, a, thing that framed my understanding of the world, right? And it wasn't the same thing because it was with, you know, a bunch of teenagers and not police, but it was the same kind of like national moment, right? Where, you know, 
my uncle was like on the Phil Donahue show, which was, I guess, the <laughs> Chris Cuomo show of its time. And, you know, they... Oh, no, not Chris Cuomo. I love Chris Cuomo. I shouldn't compare him to Donahue, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, you know, they actually made a TV movie of it where the great Joe Morton played my uncle. What? Um, oh, I love Joe yeah. Morton. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love, love Joe Morton as well. Um, if you're listening, Joe, <laughs> please join us here on The Score. Um, but, <laughs> you know, like the... So much of my worldview was shaped by that, right? And, you know, I, I, it, it's a thing that I feel like recurs every couple of years and now every couple of months. When one of these things happens, like I, I immediately think about the everything else in addition to the incident. You know, like how does this mark a person's life? You know, I have two cousins, you know, they were this person, his name was Cedric Sandiford, he's no longer alive. My two cousins, you know, are his sons. And, you know, they're very grown men now, several years older than I am. But this was the thing that marked their lives. This was the thing that shaped him, right? Um, and, and I just, I don't know what to do with a lot of these moments because you have so many people saying, you know, oh, this was a thing that happened and it changed us and we've moved as a society and we're now all in a different place. And I do feel like the murder of Mr. Floyd was, was such an inflection point for our whole generation, for all of America. But then you also turn around a year later and like you wonder what has shifted. And, you know, I wonder for his family, like, are y'all OK? You know, are, are you ever going to be okay? Are you ever going to stop thinking about this? So there are just so many pieces for me, right? And as we look out to Juneteenth, as we are, you know, practically on the eve of, you know, this in, incredible anniversary for the Tulsa race massacre, like I, I just think about the country in which we live and how far we haven't come in so many ways, you know, at the same time that we want to lift up, you know, we have a black woman vice president, right? And all of the wonderful things that we've seen changing. And then at the same time, you know, I, I don't know. And, you know, this damn PhD in history, which is such a reminder of the cycles <laughs> of racialized <laughs> violence in this country, mm-hmm. you know, you can set your watch by it. And, you know, I, I think for me, part of why the anxiety isn't dissipating at all is because I know there's always another shoe to drop. And I know that we will have this moment and some of us will feel like we have been made to different people because of the moment. And then other others of us are just going to feel like, you know, we are stuck in the same kind of morass of, of you know, anti-blackness. And that anti-blackness just is so, so present in so many places. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a hell of a week, you know, and I, I wish I could dress this up to be something else or put a spin on it that's positive or, or say, you know, but we have X and Y and Z to look forward to, but I, I, I'm not feeling that today and I, I can't, you know, I can't sort of manufacture that in this moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
<laughs> I think yeah. just un- just under the surface of like the beauty that I saw on Tuesday is all the feelings that y'all just <laughs> described also. <laughs> uh, I totally hear you. And it's like, I, I think part of the anger is like that, like what, what, tell me what has tangibly changed. Yeah. Not a whole lot, not systemically. Yeah. And just like, <laughs> I, I was really hoping I, we wouldn't get to a one year anniversary and that I wouldn't look around and be like, where'd all the, where'd all the quote unquote allies go? Where, where, Mm -hmm. where everybody at? But Mm -hmm. here I am a year later wondering where's everybody at? Um, That's a big part of the anger and frustration it's like one of those times where you like you're saying mm, i told you so and you really didn't want to have to say i told you so like yeah. i didn't yeah. want to have to say it but i knew i'd be saying it and yeah. i think like it's also it's it can be frustrating to see people falling into the same traps of talking in circles or talking about mm. symbolic change or only representational politics and like not actual change in in policy or law or structures and people getting fooled by like the same thing the my my personal <laughs> frustrations with you know our our mayor and all of that and we can we can edit edit this out later if we need to. But I just want to know. I just want to know if y'all heard about this news story about the mayor and the police chief, and how they coordinated with PR with a PR firm to basically sway city council members to um, protect MPD's budget. They basically, yes, yes. It is in the Minnesota reformer and uh, Minneapolis police chief Ardondo coordinated closely with a group called Operation Safety Now. They're like a pro-police group um, created by a PR consultant to sway public opinion and the city council against budget cuts to MPD. And the office of the mayor was in on it as well. And there are there's email proof because the uh, uh, defunding um, defunding MPD I guess was getting too popular for them. Yeah, it is in a public I... reputable news source. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. My god! My god! Yeah. Well, you know. I, I keep trying to. <laughs> Levi always makes fun of me. Our one of our our consultants that we work with always makes fun of me because I'm always just like, I don't know why anyone's surprised by any of this stuff. Like, and I need to work on like not being surprised yeah, <laughs> by these things anymore mm. because they're not surprising. And yet somehow I still find myself sitting here going, "What? Oh my gosh!" Yeah. I frequently say to people, if you are surprised right now, it's because you haven't been paying attention. And I really thought I was paying attention. And even hearing something like this to me, it's it's one of those things that I'm like, 
of all of the potential responses that you could have had to this situation, why on earth was that the one that made the sense to you? Like, I, I'm... I'm asking for a friend because like (laughs) (laughs) there's a part of me that is just so curious to know what the sequence of words were that made that into, yes, that is the good idea. Like I am legitimately curious. You know, and I think it, it goes back to something we talked about on a previous episode where it's just, you know, for so many people, you know, when we talk about, you know, you know, racism and anti-racism. For them, it's about sort of like doing some deep introspection and, you know, sort of changing their personal feelings and how they're personally, you know, relating to, you know, people of color and, you know, eliminating, you know, their um, implicit biases and and unlearning and decolonizing and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, no, no. No, this is what we're talking about. This sort of institutional BS (laughs) um, that is being perpetrated at sort of high levels of government in order and, and, and done, you know, under the cover of, you know, you know, in the darkness. Um, This is what we're talking about. This is the type of action that I'm talking about, yeah. like changing that sort of stuff, changing whatever is in the air <laughs> that makes people think that that's normal and yeah. that's okay. That after like an entire year of people being out in the streets, marching, shouting, after this trial, all of that, you know, mind effery. <laughs> Like, after all of that, this is what we're dealing with. Still. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we still have these people who are being elected into these positions and who are then appointing people into positions of power in order to do that. Yeah. And who does that serve? Yeah. It's not serving me. Mm-mm. It's not serving my community. No. It's not conser- like serving my state or my country. Who is it serving? And if it if it if it doesn't seem like it's serving you, like maybe let's stop like you know giving like these weird wealthy sociopaths like positions of power. Maybe let's stop <laughs> doing that. Just an idea. <laughs> maybe yeah. that's a maybe that's a thing we could do moving forward. But you know, you know, a thing that Damien and I talk about when we watch RuPaul is this idea of. Where are your friends? Do you know what I mean? And like, I'll tell you where I specifically mean. Sometimes on RuPaul's Drag Race, somebody will come out in an outfit and you're like, oh, sweetheart, where are your friends? Who are the people in your life who are supposed to say to you, you look a fool right now? Because we all need those people, right? If you are a politician, you need those people so much more. You need to have surrounded yourself with a group of people who are not going to support and suborn your doing crazy, inappropriate, ugly things. Matt Gates, I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. You need people around you who are going to say to you, wait a minute, this is not good. 
You represent other people. Your job is to show up for other people in a certain kind of way. You cannot just operate off of this idea, well, this seems like it's going to benefit me, so I'm just gonna run with it, right? Everybody needs those people to help guide them and to help them to be able to like reflect back to you like the the broader dynamics of your choices and 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 how things are going to play out down the road and you know even if this is something that's very selfish like where is the person to to say to the mayor wow if this gets out you will never work in politics again like even that like even if that is a thing to keep you know you on the rails what is that for for some of these people and how do we as voters get better about asking those kinds of questions about the sort of decision making matrices that that people make for themselves because this isn't this isn't a a unique thing whatsoever i i feel like this you know article you shared page we could pick a municipality in the united states and find that kind of thing happening almost anywhere, you know, even with, you know, the most progressive voices that we have in the country. And it's just a, it, it's a thing that I just find so exasperating. You know, I feel like we have some deeply rooted issues in this country around not wanting to let go of a, a set of ideologies that are clearly serving none of us anymore. And the fact that people run back to, you know, the Constitution says this, that, and the third. Most of these people couldn't spell Constitution, let alone having read it, right? They're talking about a bunch of stuff that were written on the fly, a series of compromises that were executed in a particular moment where many of those people who wrote it were writing under duress, right? And now we are trying to use aspects of that to hold us into acting in a certain way now hundreds of years later it doesn't even make any sense right and and i don't understand why more people aren't pushing this idea of where are we right now what are our needs right now how do we make some radical shifts around that like many of us don't have that much to lose anyway Right. So, like, being able to have some of these. Millennials and Gen Z stand up. (laughs) (laughs) We've been here like, I have six figures in debt. Come at me. I I got nothing to lose. (laughs) I got $27 and a bag of hot Cheetos. (laughs) You want that? And, you want the apartment just, I'm sharing with 50 other roommates because I can't because rent is so high. What do you? What do you want? It just—I mean, I—I I try not to be somebody who's just throwing his hands up in the air, right? And and just being like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I really try to be focused on. Let me identify what in my small sphere I can control and affect the change that I believe in there. But I do have these moments of of just having more questions and answers. And I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions this week. I don't have a lot of answers. And I feel, 
I feel like the tiredness of the ancestors, you know, I, I just feel like the fact that any of our great grandparents, like literally our great grandparents, three of them could have been sitting in a room and having this exact same conversation, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. you know, I, I just, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. I really don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know if there any Maybe. is anything else to say. <laughs> until something changes, I don't know. It feels like, you know, I, people say this over and over again, but because it's true, broken record, like yeah. just, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's one in the afternoon, and I already feel like I need some brandy. But not <laughs> not liquor. I'm talking Brandy Norwood. I feel like this is like... Yes. <laughs> I'm going to need some 90s music to pull me out of this. Well, I think that that is actually, you know, a kind of a theme for this conversation. And maybe we can just put it out there into the universe. Put it out there to perhaps some of the, the folks that came out last summer and they were allies and they were not there with you and in George Floyd Square on Tuesday. Y'all almost doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> almost well does not count. Listen to it again. Run it back if you need to. Run this whole thing back if you need to. <laughs> well. Yes. Let's cleanse our spirits because we have guests. We have company coming. Woohoo! <laughs> Yay! Yes, it's very exciting. We have a very, 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 very special guest. Two very special guests coming yes, up. Yes, we do. So stay tuned, and we will be right back. We are very excited to have two wonderful guests with us today. Um, and I'll say just a little bit more about them shortly. The Harlem Chamber Players, a New York-based orchestra founded and run by Liz Player, is a wonderful ensemble whose work I am very proud to support. This season, they are producing Pity These Ashes, Tulsa 1921 to 2021, to commemorate both the Tulsa Race Massacre and Juneteenth on Saturday, June 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern. The concert will feature music by some of our favorite composers, including Jesse Montgomery, Alice Coltrane, Trevor Weston, Weston, and a world premiere by today's very, very special guests, Adolphus Hailstork and Herbert Martin, which will be performed by mezzo-soprano Janae Bridges. Thank you so much, Dr. Hailstork and Dr. Martin for joining us. The music of composer Adolphus Hailstork has been played by major orchestras across the globe, including in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Detroit. And his operas have been produced by the Opera Theater of St. Louis, Chicago, Cincinnati, Kansas City Lyric, and others. He has degrees from Manhattan School of Music and Michigan State University with additional training from the American Conservatory at Fontainebleau and Howard University, which we believe is the greatest place on earth. He is currently <laughs> working on his fourth symphony and a knee on a neck, a tribute to George Floyd. 
Herbert Martin is Professor Emeritus in English at the University of Dayton, where he has been on the faculty since 1970. Educated at SUNY Buffalo, Middlebury College, and Carnegie Mellon, Dr. Martin is a noted scholar of African-American writer Paul Lawrence Dunbar and a prolific poet and librettist as well. I believe he's published eight books of poetry and five monographs or edited volumes based on his research. He's written libretti for the opera, The Last Czar with Philip Magnuson and a cantata about Crispus Attucks, who of course is, was the first American killed in the American Revolution with our other guest today, Adolphus Hailstork. Thank you both for being here. Thank Yay. you for inviting me. <laughs> welcome, we're so happy to have you. Welcome, welcome. So uh, for our, those in our audience who may be less familiar with your work than we are, just to get us started, I wanted to ask, how, if at all, has your identity as Black Americans shaped your journeys in classical music and poetry? Well, I think in terms of being Black or African American, which has allowed me to uh, feed into racial and ethnic identity, which has been mine all along by birth, perhaps this is a given and it's given me, I would say, an edge uh, in terms of writing suitable texts, uh, whatever the case may be, I think I've responded, you know, as best as I could. And uh, saying this, I realize this unlocks um, the term for me. On the one hand, it puts me in a uh, kind of bind or a box, but on the other hand, it frees me to do many things that I had not given thought to. So I don't, I don't think it's a, a hinder uh, or a hamper to me at all. Um, mm. Well, my own response to that is uh, I, uh, I jumped from box to box. <laughs> that, uh, I, uh, I consider myself a cultural hybrid or multicultural actually. And um, that I, some pieces I write reflect uh, African-American uh, heritage. Some pieces don't. Um, when, uh, so I, when I'm presented with a text, some of the spectacular texts of um, Herbert Martin, then um, I, I want to work with that and uh, try to reflect the, the qualities, the pathos that, that uh, he brings to it, the passion he brings to it. And um, there are other texts I use or that I've been involved with that don't reflect our heritage. And, uh, and so I don't feel obligated at all times to make sure that uh, the music reflects um, black idioms. Um, but that's it. Uh, the first thing a person is, is an individual. And then you want to start putting labels on what kind of individual he is and what kind of work he does. Then uh, in my case, anyway, that gets very complex and everybody admits that I'm multi-stylistic and I proudly accept the label. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for those. Those are really fantastic thoughts. Well, one thing I'm very curious about, um, you know, Let's take it all the way back to the beginning. And so just thinking about, you know, that moment that you fell in love with classical music, that you fell in love with poetry, what was that moment? And, you know, 
at the beginning of your career, did you have any mentors, um, especially Black mentors that you looked up to? Um, and if so, what were some of the things that you admired about them and just some of the things that you love about what you do? I grew up in, in Northern New York State, uh, or mid New York State, Albany, New York. There were no Black mentors. I had no Black mentors. I did not go to a Black church. I went, came up in a white Episcopal cathedral, very high church Episcopal cathedral. And um, the, uh, my, my first, I see, like say, immersion into uh, black culture, black history, et cetera, was when I went to Howard University uh, as an undergrad. And uh, that was, <laughs> Absolutely a new experience because I didn't go to a, a black high school. In other words, the so-called black experience, which has really been uh, identified as the Southern black experience, um, it was something that I, I was not exposed to until I got to Howard. And uh, um, before that, how I got into music, I never knew when I wasn't in music. Uh, I, I started in music... Uh, with a aptitude test when I hit the third grade. Yeah, they put a violin in my hand and the rest is history. I played in the, uh, the public school orchestras. I sang in the cathedral choir, a boys and men's choir, a la England, a uh, whole nine yards. So um, my, my whole experience has been shaped uh, very strongly by my early upbringing in classical literature. Mm -hmm. uh, I now I heard jazz, I heard R and B, I heard all those other things, but the fundamental impact, the 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 work in which I was most involved was of the Euro tradition. I think I began at the uh, opposite end of the spectrum um, because I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and so uh, yeah. we we quite naturally went to uh, the Baptist church and heard all of the, the songs, all of the old hymns of the church, which were always sung a cappella uh, before the prayers in the church. Uh, and so I was literally born into that tradition, I suppose. And so, in fact, I learned dialect from one to 12. And then we moved north to Ohio and all of that disappeared. And so I had to learn standard English. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and forget about it. And, uh, and that's I, all I ever knew. <laughs> so now I have both. I moved back yeah. and forth. Uh, and one of the things that I learned early on is Dunbar was in the textbook in Alabama. Uh, because the literati of those days were black for the black schools and white for the white schools. Uh, when I moved north, that all changed again. Uh, and so the people who edited the text for the schools quite naturally left Dunbar out because they were white mm. and didn't know anything about him. So he disappeared for four years. Then when I went to college, uh, I was a sophomore 
and lo and behold, the book opened and there were black authors. And uh, in those days, you didn't question the professor. I yelled out, there are black people in this book. (laughs) 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 I think the class and I was sort of astounded by that. Uh, But none of them knew that I hadn't seen any black writers for the last four years of high school. They, They just weren't there. You know, and so I had to reintroduce, re-enter myself to them, you know, in, in college. Uh, and from that point on, I think they were almost always there. And I searched out people that I knew were close by and I would unabashedly knock on their door <laughs> and gain entrance to their houses. Uh, so I think the, the word must have gotten around that there's this crazy little kid who will show up at any time uninvited and you have to invite him in. And most of them did. So that's how I connected with most of the black authors around uh, the the country. Hmm, Thank you so much. (laughs) That I, you mentioned like some of what some of your, educational you know spaces were were like or the spaces where you were um really you know developing in in music and in poetry and there's been a lot of a a lot of change since then but there's especially been a lot of change just in this past year or two alone Mm. and so i I kind of want to fast forward now and 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 ask you both what's been uh, unique about the past year uh, for both of you. Um, are there have there been unique opportunities or or challenges um, for for both yourself or or that you observe for 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 black artists or Afri- for artists of color in general? Well, let me say that I feel like I have been knocking on the back door of the academy for Mm -hmm. the longest time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And and sometimes they, uh, I think they haven't really quite answered, uh, but don't worry about that. I keep writing anyway. (laughs) And and the voices I explore are both uh, black and white. uh, And I, I think that that's because I find everybody that I approach has to be human. Mm. And then from that point on, it may very well be that somebody asks me to write a text that has to do with a black subject matter. And that's okay too. Uh, And I'm fine about that. Uh, So I just, I just barrel ahead, but, but the, the community has changed and a great many black writers, some now deceased, have uh, made it into the academy and made it into, I think, the anthologies. Uh, That for the writer is immortality, I think, because as long as the anthologies out there, they get taught. That's been my experience, and I've been happy to send blindly uh, to a journal. Uh, who accept something, and that amazes me because I wonder why they took it. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you have to go with acceptances. Well, my own experience uh, is that uh, 
there's been an opening up. Now, this is cyclical, though, and, and some of my colleagues are skeptical about its continuance. Um, when Back in the 80s, when uh, the Congress was debating whether they're going to have a Martin Luther King holiday, you know, I, I realized that uh, there was an opportunity there um, for black composers because librarians all of a sudden from different orchestras were scrambling all over the place <laughs> music by black composers. So they can say, oh yeah, we got a black composer on this song. His name is Martin Luther King. And I said, well, let me get myself ready. And then I, uh, I wrote a piece called Epitaph for a Man Who Dreamed. And um, other pieces addressing the situation. And uh, the, it did, the holiday came into being and also there was also um, Black History Month. And I said, okay, they're, they're, they, now that they're awakened, let's see if this continues. It did not continue, the enthusiasm did not mm -hmm. continue. But I did get um, frequent performances. Then that faded away for 20 years or so, uh, occasionally, uh, concern, you know, just looking at the music for its quality, which is okay with me too, because I'll put it against a lot of composers. <laughs> and, um, and, and then now, now, we're talking about, you know, it took the death of Martin Luther King, because that's how I got in grad school, by the way. I mean, not in grad school, but working on my doctorate. I was in the army and they, all of a sudden, as soon as he was killed, money started popping out of the walls at universities and they were throwing it at black scholars. And, um, and it's saying, would you please come to our school? Okay. And uh, then um, this is now with the death of George Floyd, uh, we've got all of this interest in music of black composers and young people, especially young composers, I'm very happy for them, are seizing the opportunity and coming forth with all kinds of literature, most of it or much of it anyway, protest literature, which are socially oriented literature, which is exactly what many orchestras and ensembles want. Um, the, uh, they, they, another thing that's influencing the the orchestras uh, and, and and operas and uh, etc is the fact that they want to increase their audience. This mm -hmm. there's a big big uh, discussion going on right now about uh, how do you get blacks in the orchestra? How do you get blacks in the audience? Um, how do you get blacks on stage in opera? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. This is going on, it's become very uh, active uh, since the death of George Floyd. And um, uh, people are beginning to line up for Dr. Martin's uh, Requiem piece that he wrote, and I'm, I'm working with him on that. Uh, and uh, and um, it's, it's, it, it discusses in a way uh, the problems of being an African-American in this country. Just, I mean, he starts out with, with a, a black mother's warning, mm. commandment to her, her child, especially her son, to uh, watch out when you go outside because if a policeman may stop you at any time just because uh, your skin is, is dark. And, uh, this, and so it's a powerful statement, but powerful statements are redone all over the place. 
We know that Tulsa, the story of Tulsa was not even discovered or re revealed in a large way until the 1990s. And now composers all over the place are, are jumping on it as a theme. And, uh, and, I, and I, again, I got a very powerful text from Herb on, on that uh, subject. And um, I, I enjoyed writing it, but overall, there's a there's a, a a foment you might say of going on uh, concerning the, the with the interest in, in black composers. I'm and I'm very glad to see that happening, especially for the young people, and um, hope it continues this time. Hope they this all this talk about well what can we do uh, continues beyond a mere ten years or something like that, and then. Will it just die out or can it now become part of the American canon? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it can't be always uh, Copeland and Bernstein <laughs> and Roy Harrison uh, and George Gershwin as representing Black, of course. Uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, let's, let's see the great opening up uh, maybe going on. So that's what I have to say about that. Thank you. I would just like Thank to you. say that, you know, thinking back to the uh, Black commandment uh, and, and the cantata that's coming up, my mother would, I was the kid who could get to town and pay the bills when we were in Alabama. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was always told that this is what I had to do. Right. Keep, keep the money pinned to my underwear until I went into the house or into the store. <laughs> and then when I got to the lady at the counter, uh, I could take the money out of my <laughs> underwear and pay her. And then I was to make sure that I got the receipt from her that I had given her our money. And then I could take the bus back home. And always, you know, I had to be aware of I was going downtown. I was about to uh, go into where everybody was in the city and I was to be on my best behavior because my mother always said, you know, if you get arrested, there's no telling what I am going to find out mm. when one, I get the news, two, I get a lawyer, and three, when I get to the jailhouse. And so she said, mind your P's and Q's. And so always I had that in the back of my mind. It wasn't any kind of conversation. She just said, these are the laws, these are the rules, follow them and you'll come home. Uh, and oh. so I did. And that's, that's sort of been ingrained, it was ingrained in me. Uh, and in those days you didn't say, well, why do I have to do that that way? ever talk back to the bears no matter what you know why are you going this road you know because i want to wow <laughs> yeah that would be yeah. the there, so. and you have that story right here in your text and yeah. uh how to behave uh if, if you are approached by a policeman and yeah. Uh, well, and, and you also have the story of your mother worrying about if she had to come down to the jailhouse, what she would find. I mean, George Floyd didn't even make it to a jailhouse. So, uh, you know, it's, it's um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't 
know how personal this was for you. you know, well, it, I didn't need it until this you is, said that. This is wonderful to know this. And uh, boy, I hope I hope you like the piece. I worked hard on this second. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 28 minutes long, a big orchestra, big choir, three soloists. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll see what happens with the team of Martin and Hailstar. Okay. <laughs> well, part of my, my upbringing when I went north, I, I got a music teacher. And so when I get these orders from you saying, give me a text for this or that or the other, I try to figure out what, uh, what the musical line is going to be. Ah, and whether right. that those words will fit into the context of that person's personality or his voice range or her voice range or those kinds of things. So I'm always aware of whether or not a word is singable or not. That's, mm. that's important to me. Mm. So, uh, and I try to say to you many times, if it doesn't quite uh, agree to you, change it because there's no reason to fight over uh, pronouns and consonants and yeah. whatever else. I especially like what you did with the Tulsa. You personalized it with this woman who's watching her mother die. Yes. Oh, and then uh, she is in the whole rest of the piece is kind of like a lament, uh, a storytelling lament of, that is, of course, colored by that scene of watching what her mother said to her just before she died. Yeah. And uh, that made it so powerful. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a fortuitous bonding. We're gonna be going down in history, young man. <laughs> well, <laughs> Martin and Hailstark and Martin, Martin and Hailstark, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, most, of, most of that text comes from my imagination because uh, the Tulsa people who had the power completely eradicated everything that went on. They, they literally assassinated that whole section of town and, and burned it down. And then they kept the media away mm. uh, and, mm. and would not let any information. So I was up against the real wall when I first began. I thought, how do I, how do I write the text for this? Yep. when the information has been uh, hidden from us for uh -huh. so many years. Uh, right. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was indeed terrifying to me because <laughs> I had to imagine what was going on. That is really, really powerful. And I know that our listeners are going to be so interested in hearing about your process, right? I think that's something that many of us are not privy to, how pieces like this are shaped and created. And I know, especially for those of us in the Twin Cities, that a knee on a neck will be a, a really important and emotional piece for us to reflect on everything that's happened here. So I'm so grateful to have heard a little bit about how that came together. We only have a, a few minutes left and I wanted to just ask in closing, since you've brought up a few things around how classical music has changed over the years and some of what you've both have talked about with getting black people more closely into these spaces 
is a key part of what Paige and Rocky and I do every day at Minnesota Opera. So in closing, I'm curious if there's anything that you might want to say about what changes you hope to see either in opera, classical music, poetry, what have you, um, especially relative to communities of color in the next few years. Well, more of the younger generation especially are integrating, um, let's say, urban sounds mm. into, into their writing. Um, I didn't come up in that way, although I have used jazz and I have used blues uh, and I definitely have used and love the spirituals, which you might say is not mm -hmm. the urban writing, uh, but um, it is reflective of the history of our people. And I, um, I think that this, this is a good thing as long as, as, as it stays a broad thing. I, I've noticed that uh, some uh, entrepreneurs trying to put together a concert or conductors are, uh, are, are um, requesting or looking for music which reflects only the urban experience mm. and the finger popping and the hip twitching approach with the entertainment approach <laughs> to African music. And one thing I like to tell people is that black people are a lot deeper than just their entertainment value. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that, 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 that Gershwin is not the foundation of uh, what it means to uh, have an African-American experience or certainly mm -hmm. an African-American musical experience. And there are other approaches much more serious that come out of the, the deep non-jumping around black church. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, uh, 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 so I think it's the beginning, especially if more mu uh, black musicologists come along uh, and, and, and even black critics who uh, can reflect, who have the history and know the history of, of the background of our, our people uh, can reflect on this music. And it's not just slotted into, um, uh, you know, uh, the Nicholas Brothers that, that dancing <laughs> or, or something like that. Oh, and we're, we're different and, and, and not exclusively uh, jazz, hip hop, rap, right. et cetera. Uh, so uh, that is what I think it's a path, whether it goes that way or not. Again, the problem is if there's a problem and there's that, that, that the means of production are in the hands of people who know nothing about or care nothing about or very little about mm. uh, what it means to be African-American in this country. And so they have a mindset of what black music should be. And that could be a box they're yeah. creating that we have to be very careful about. Absolutely. I found just briefly uh, uh, becoming a narrator for uh, symphony orchestras around the, the country uh, has been a kind of godsend. And that is to say that I have been able to narrate Copeland as well as William Grant Still. And in that sense, uh, uh, I am hoping that what I'm doing is giving the uh, black audiences in those towns, an opportunity to first of all see a black person come out and handle the language like any other actor who is on the uh, podium. And so in that way, 
I'm hoping that they say, well, if he did it, I can do it too. Uh, and I can manage that language or I can become a narrator for this particular work. So all of those opportunities are still there. Uh, black actors and actresses just have to be given the opportunity uh, to show that they can do this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. Um, wow, thank you. Thank you both for this. This has been such an honor and a pleasure this morning. Um, let's give them a quick round of applause. I know it's a <laughs> class, but... <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And once again, the Harlem Chamber Players Pity These Ashes, Tulsa 1921 to 2021, premieres online on Saturday, June 19th, 7 p.m. Eastern. Also performing on the program are noted violinists Lady Jess, Jessica McJunkins, and harpist Ashley Jackson. In support of the concert, The Dream Unfinished, the New York-based activist orchestra is sponsoring the panel Remembrance and Restitution, where professors Jasmine Young, Ashley Lawrence Sanders, Ashley Jackson, and I will discuss the role Black artists play in maintaining historical memory. This panel airs on Facebook Live on June 10th, and we'll include information about both events in this week's program notes. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll be right back after a brief break. to the score everybody it is time for our pb and j pure black mm. joy delicious yum, yum, yum. <laughs> i've always wanted to have to do the peanut butter jelly time song i feel like <laughs> it's peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly time peanut butter jelly time <laughs> So I'm delighted to kick things off today with um, another little update from my illustrious alma mater, Howard University, um, that just announced it is officially decided to name the newly reinstated College of Fine Arts, the Chadwick A. Bozeman College of Fine Arts. Yay, yeah. yay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, rest in peace, King. Rest in peace, rest in power, Chadwick. And this just means a lot for, I mean, on multiple levels, because I mean, yeah. A, like deserving, so deserving. <laughs> Amazing career by all accounts, a wonderful human being. I've heard everybody from not just celebrities, but regular folk who <laughs> met him who just said that he was just a beacon of light um, walking the earth. So, so deserving. And that he was a big part of the College of Fine Arts actually being reinstated. Mm. So he mm. spoke at um, Howard University commencement a couple years ago. And while he was there, I, I, I don't know if he made it like a, a term of him speaking or um, a term of like donating or something like that. But basically it was like, you know, 
the College of Fine Arts needs to be reinstated. If we if we want to talk mm-hmm. about me, <laughs> if we want to talk about me speaking to this commencement and, you know, publicly being involved in all that, here's what needs to happen. And he was actually a part of even those, um, that movement when he was at Howard um, decades ago at this point. So I, it's just so beautiful and I'm so inspired by him and... I think everybody from alumni to current students to future students of fine arts are just really overjoyed with all the with all the good news that has come out of that department. So yay! yay. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So much joy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yay. Even though the way you said decades ago, it it hurt my heart a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it was a lot, but I just pushed through it. <laughs> I just pushed through it. But it it is truly No 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 no. It's 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 time. <laughs> it's a an objective, I suppose, thing. It's a thing. <laughs> I, I mean numbers just don't lie and Chadwick was several years older than I am. I, I just wanna put that out there. It's actually the same age as as my husband, which is where old starts usually, where where people who are my age, it's it's generally a, a youthful kind of a moment. I don't know if he's going to listen to this podcast, okay. but I, I wanted mm-hmm. to hit him with that shade um, okay. officially. Well, <laughs> well Damien, I, I hope you're enjoying <laughs> the podcast <Right. laughs> and that your marriage survived. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, everybody well, born in the 70s. Yay! Um, that, that's not my ministry. Mine either. <laughs> um, well, my joy this week, and like I said before, I cannot believe I tricked you both into letting me talk about <laughs> So actually, this is often the saddest week of the year for me. Because it means it's a whole nother year until there's a new Eurovision. (laughs) 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 Which is just my obsession, my secret, like, like, have you seen that, that sort of meme on TikTok that's like, you know, POV, like, you've been kidnapped, but the kidnappers return you after two hours because you won't stop talking about what? <laughs> For me, it's Eurovision. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's, it is, it is now, like, it's in its 65th year. It is officially the longest running, largest music contest in the entire world. Wow. With tens of millions of people from around the globe every year tuning into the semis and the grand final in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia. Um, It is just a huge celebration of all different kinds of of music. I think the first time that I saw it, it was um, the 2015 show, and I had just moved to Minnesota. I didn't know anyone except for my husband. 
he was like at work i wasn't working yet it was memorial day weekend it was raining cats and dogs so i couldn't go anywhere <laughs> even if i knew where to go <laughs> and for whatever reason for the 25 i think it was the 60th contest um they were um live streaming it on youtube and so I had all these people on my Twitter feed going like, oh, my God, Serbia. Oh, Sweden. Oh, you know, <laughs> Russia. <laughs> that song was crazy. With, like, all these, like, you know, like, pictures of, like, these people in, like, glitter costumes and strange masks and hats and things. And I was like, what is going on in Europe? <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to YouTube and it was just the, the voting portion of the show where all the countries come in and they, they announce who they voted for. And it was, like, all these, like, people in, like, crazy, co- like, dresses and, like, just saying, like, insane, crazy things. And, like, it was just, like, so fun. And then at the end, that was the year that Sweden won Manzamerlov, and he's cute. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and then he sang his little song and it was, it it was kind of a bop. And I was like, (laughs) 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 and so I went back the next day and I watched the whole thing and I was just instantly obsessed. And I think the thing for me that is so every year, that's so exciting about it is that like, Yes, it's this celebration of music, all sorts of genres from pop to R&B to rap to rock to opera. There have Mm -hmm. been several opera acts that have qualified for the uh, grand final over the course of the last few years. Um, And also like the geopolitics of it all, (laughs) (laughs) I find really spicy and interesting. And of course, just the glitter and the grandeur and the, the splendor. Um, But also just what sort of really got me and sometimes just kind of gets me a little choked up is just the inclusivity of it all. Because you think something called Eurovision, like, oh, that's going to be some white nonsense. (laughs) No, it's it's just just nonsense. It is what I thought the first time you brought it up. (laughs) I learned about Eurovision through you, and I was like, Eurovision? (laughs) And and I understand why. I had the same reaction. (laughs) But, like, I mean, it's so just openly queer. Just so, so queer. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people are just there just dancing and having an amazing time. And artists who are black, white, Asian, um, just from all over the globe representing just just a diversity of... of, um, just experiences and backgrounds and music and it's just it's so cool (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so i bring it up um this year because one of the things that i felt was so cool this year is that like five black acts qualified for the final this year which is so cool um you had destiny from Malta with her song Shima Cass, which if you like Lizzo, if you like Beyonce. Mm-hmm. I watched that one. It's a bop. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> it, really is. <laughs> it was so good. Um uh, uh McCroy for the Netherlands with um Birth of a New Age. Um he is Dutch but is of Guyanese descent and he incorporated um 
some uh, lyrics in Guyanese Creole um, into his song, which is all about like uh, colonization and resisting um, mm. and mm. holding on to your traditions, your, you know, part of the lyrics are they, you know, imprisoned your thoughts, they, they, stomped on your gods but they're not going to break you Hmm. um and Hmm. it's just this amazing beautifully thoroughly black song (laughs) 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 Um, just gorgeous and then you know others there's two say from sweden and uh gosh who am i who am i forgetting um, of Sunit from San Marino, mm-hmm. and she had a verse um, from Florida, and he actually showed up in Rotterdam this year um, to do his verse live. Oh, wow. Um, I know. They backed a Brinks truck, I guess, up to his house and you know, informed him that San Marino is a thing, and <laughs> they would like you to come do a verse on their song, please. Um and I mean, it just uh, oh, and um, Eden Aline from uh, from Israel. Uh, she is of uh, I think her parents are Ethiopian. Oh, cool! Um, and so she also qualified for the final. And so it was just like a super black final. And unfortunately, spoiler alert: none of them won mm-hmm. this year, um, which is a big bummer. We all thought Destiny was she uh, was extraordinary. To, she. And you know, and she she has been signed to a major label record deal. Oh, so uh, she did win in a way. And they are, and Malta was hoping that like she would come back and represent them again, um, but she might just be a little too big for the show this year. Um, but it it was just so lovely and heartening to see um, all of these black folks representing up yeah. on that stage. Um, holding it down for us, for the culture, <laughs> at Eurovision, of all places. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so that that was what brings me, brings me joy the second week of every May. Um, so <laughs> if you want to check it out, the, the semifinals and the finals are um, on Peacock, actually, for free, because there is going to be an American song contest. Is there really? Um, yeah, premiering this winter, apparently. And it's oh. going to be all 50 states and D.C. and all of the territories. So Puerto Rico and Guam and... The American, American Samoa. Samoa. And, oh. mm-hmm. Should we, um, uh, the three of us, throw something together and submit? Is is that a thing <laughs> we should be working on right now? Yes, but what we should do is we should put something together and submit it to San Marino so we can be like Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm trying to get a free free trip to Europe. That sounds good to me. I'm I mean, I'm just saying. I want to go. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, let's aim you don't high. have to be from the from the country to represent it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, for, Celine Celine Dion won for Switzerland in like the early '90s. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's not Swiss. And she also doesn't <laughs> need to win like a anybody's singing competition because she's already a legend. Well, I, think it was, I think it was like in like 1989 or okay, something. Okay, that makes so. me feel, I mean, like not like Celine yeah. Dion like three years ago being like, let no. me just wear these kids out real quick. <laughs> but that's another thing that's like, it's so weird to me. It's like this sort of like kind of like quote unquote gentleman's agreement, I guess, again, uh, like 
between the countries that like they don't send acts that have like a big sort of international following right because i'm just like united kingdom why don't you just send adele <laughs> and just like have her stomp all over everyone right <laughs> oh, i see i didn't realize they could just send like technically send anybody so they could yeah, send they anybody could send i mean we should just tell beyonce that this is a thing and then just wrap this up for the next decade for the u.s <laughs> wait I mean. we don't get to participate in america do we and we don't we are they okay. they don't want us well well you know but they invited australia <laughs> which is very much not europe so that's interesting very much not europe but apparently the eurovision is huge in australia and so they they invited them for the 2015 show because it was the 60th anniversary and they would be like oh this would be cute and fun <laughs> for our 60th anniversary and australia was just like wait i'm sorry we get to what and then they came in and they just another person of color um i'm not exactly sure what his background is um but guy sebastian came over mur- murdered j- murdered the stage and ended up in fifth place <laughs> and then the next year they were like all right well that was fun why don't we invite them again and they almost came through and won the whole thing and wow. they should have because their song was the best one they well, said we've been waiting opinion. we've been waiting they for were this they moment. were waiting in the wings <laughs> I still say we put together a delegation, Beyonce, Jennifer Hudson, Patti LaBelle, and just end it. And let's just say, this is what y'all meant to do. Here's what it is. Thank you very much, Eurovision. We took the crown. Come back and get it if you think you can. That's my contribution. You need us. These are the the ideas that you need. I would even you know, I would even take sending um a, a Lady Gaga honestly because that girl can write a song. Yes, she can. She can write yes, she can. a song and perform. And play that piano. Come on now. So th- that that's why we, we the competition would just be <laughs> a little and too do much it we in a filet mignon outfit. I mean the the whole <laughs> nothing is more American than going and barking a song and doing it in a meat dress. Like that, that is what we do really, really well. You know, I, the first time I saw Eurovision was 1997. I was in an exchange program that sent American kids over to Germany and my host brother, shout to Gregor and the whole Stalter family, exposed me to Eurovision (laughs) and it was, I didn't get it at the time. I'm not even going to pretend. Um, it was another time and another place, and my aesthetic was very much geared towards, you know, a certain notorious B.I.G. So like Eurovision just like bounced off my brain, and I well, couldn't and I absorb think also, it. Also, like in the '90s, it wasn't up until about like maybe 2011. I feel like the contest took a a sharp right turn where like countries went oh wait you mean like our songs could act no it was 2013 Mm -hmm. in azerbaijan when like the song that won was like actually good (laughs) and people went wait you mean our our eurovision entries could be actually (laughs) you know yeah i i i wish that i had been there at that point to have seen it because my loose memories of it was like it just seemed super weird but i will say this i saw it on uh, rupaul's drag race uk they had a little 
competition episode. UK hunt. Ding, dang, dong. I guess I forgot who I was talking to for like two seconds. Like, (laughs) but it was so good, and I was like, Damien, we need to watch this this year, and then of course we didn't. So now we have the joy of going back and piecing this together via YouTube. But I did see a couple of the performances and. I'm obsessed with Destiny. Like, I I might need to put my ducats in a row so I can go to Europe and actually see her live because I thoroughly enjoyed what she did. And I'll tell you, she... It wasn't a a great performance in the semifinals, but if you go to Peacock and set up a free account, you can watch both of the semifinals and the final for free. Her final performance, she knocked it out of the park. I would love to see her and Lizzo do something together. Isn't Lizzo from this part of the country? Did I make that up? You are correct. Uh, well, if she's from Michigan, right? But she claims. I think Minnesota. it may be one of those things where, like, she came, claims a few different cities. Like, has lived, <laughs> had spent, you know, formative years in a few different places. So I think it's like here and Michigan, but also, is it Texas? Am I getting that right? I don't remember. I don't remember. Uh-huh. Well, she's just. But yeah, no, they would they would kill it. Together. She's a woman of the world, but they would do <laughs> so well together, and I I would, you know, pay good money, pay good money for that. Maybe one of our miniatures this year will submit some beautiful mini opera written for Lizzo and Destiny, and we will all get our lives off of that. Ooh, and flute. Yes, yes absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I looked it up just because I love facts. Lizzo was born in Detroit, and then she moved to Houston, Texas, and but then she started her career here in Minneapolis. So she's basically ah. like following you wherever you go. Apparently, I mean, I mean, I haven't been to Houston, but I would love to. So, but yay, another Detroit girl! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I endorse that collaboration even more now. <laughs> And you only think you want to go to Houston. It is the most humid place you've ever been oh. in your life. It is, yeah. yeah. But the food is quite on point if you're in the barbecue. Well, and, you know, if there is some sort of, like, Beyonce history mm-hmm. tour, <laughs> maybe that I could take. Oh, let's be clear. It would be mostly for food, Beyonce, and black cowboys. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. A perfect name for your future autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to wrap this up really quick, I will say if you want to get into Eurovision, you can watch, like I said, this year's contest on Peacock, but there are some um, of the grand finals from the past few years which are not geo blocked on YouTube and you can watch them in full. Um, I would suggest starting with 2014 and moving to 2015. Um, (laughs) But they're all fun (laughs) in their own way. You know, when the country that wins the contest um, hosts it the next year. So like that might, if you don't like spoilers, (laughs) um, you know, maybe that's just something to keep in mind. but it's it's a good time. It's a good way to to spend a uh, a rainy afternoon <laughs> like this one if you've got three hours to go <laughs> and you want to watch some nonsense. <laughs> Thank you. Well, actually, 
actually nonsense is one of my favorite things to watch later. Uh, who I may take you up on that. Then this is then this is perfect. I'd rather Let's watch go. nonsense than live it. So maybe I can. <laughs> okay. And if you and if you head. ever need a guide to guide you through it, I am happy. I know all of the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I know why. <laughs> I know why. You know, Armenia and Azerbaijan are participating, <laughs> even though they're not in Europe. <laughs> I, I'm happy to answer these questions for you. <laughs> you heard it here first, y'all. Rocky yes. Jones, the official uh, Black Eurovision liaison. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, yes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna print up business cards. I look forward to Rocky. They're just being like someday an official like Black review of Eurovision from Rocky. I can see it. I can see it. That is such a good idea. But I I actually also was not kidding about like me representing San Marino. I've said this a number of times. (laughs) And I'm just going to take this opportunity to manifest that once again. So that means we finally get to hear you sing? Maybe. Then I'm here for it. (laughs) Same. <laughs> you and 200 million of them. <laughs> well, I think we will leave it there. Thank you once again for letting me expound about your vision for half an hour. And <laughs> thank you to our incredible guests, uh, Professor Martin and Professor Hailstork, for being with us. Yay. And all the usual stuff. Follow us, uh, review, rate us, uh, share with your friends. Um, anyone who you feel needs some pure black joy in yes. their ears. Um, but anything... Anything else that you, either one of you, want to say before we, uh, before we head out? Hey, I everybody! Tried to think of something wise. I'll just say, stay safe, everybody, and uh, we love you, and we will see you in two weeks. Two weeks for our special uh, Juneteenth episode. Yay! 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 So we'll see you then. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.